And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's the Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of the Rodcast, David Steele. Yes, well, 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 we are back. Yes, folks, that's right. We're back with a great new episode of the Rodcast. We cannot thank you enough for listening in today. It's been a while, but it's worth the wait just to hear yet another fine introduction from our man, Larry Babb. Uh, Yes, that's Larry Babb on the mic doing the kind of work that Don Pardo could only dream of. Yes, thank you for that introduction, Larry Babb, best darn announcer in all of broadcasting. I am your host, David Steele, and I could not be any more excited to be bringing you this new episode of the American Hot Rod Foundation's broadcast. And, you know, speaking of the American Hot Rod Foundation, I want to call attention to the fact that it just so happens that we have the good fortune of being able to call today's guest an advisory board member at the foundation, and it is an honor. Oh, and we also might want to mention that he's been inducted into the International Drag Racing Hall of Fame. So our guest today, Dave Wallace Jr., is not only one of the greatest living drag racing historians, but is also someone who has a range of perspective across the sport and hobby of of hot rodding in particular the publishing world, that is second to none. He started working at San Fernando Drag Strip as an 11-year-old, and he never looked back. I mean, imagine that. Imagine the perspective of having seen the greatest front-engine top-fuel dragsters in the history of the sport going head-to-head every weekend, weekend after weekend, year after year, when they were brand-new creations, only to end up decades later covering their restorations and their rebirth by way of the nostalgia drag racing scene. It's enough to make a slightly younger enthusiast like myself green with envy. Uh, Not to mention the fact that every big-time drag racer from the 1960s knows Dave, and they know him from the time when he was just that skinny little kid hanging out at the drag strip, handing out time slips at the base of the tower at San Fernando. I mean, just incredible stuff. And that's why I say that we at the American Hot Rod Foundation are so incredibly lucky to have him to call on for questions regarding this, in my opinion, greatest era in drag racing and many other things that you'll hear Dave Wallace being so very expert on. But With all that said, what really makes Dave so special is that he's a truly wonderful guy. I happen to know this firsthand because Dave has been an amazingly generous person to me. As an example, when Dave heard I was moving to Los Angeles, this is about eight years ago, he immediately offered to let me hang around the offices where Hot Rod Deluxe magazine was being published at the time just to do a little proofreading, fact-checking, 
and walk home with a nice little amount of, you know, food and gas money. And, you know, obviously this was something he didn't have to do, but he did. He did it and he did it for all the right reasons, because when I questioned him as to why he felt they would ever need someone like me poking around that magazine, he said, well, it's as much about you making sure I don't call a 29 Model A a 30 as it is the fact that, hey, you're a new kid in town who is wanting to find his place in the L.A. car world, and it can't be a bad thing for you to get to know guys like David Freiberger or Drew Harden or Thomas Voringer. And, and he was right. And man, man, oh man, was that a generous move. And Dave has been that way about everything for as long as I've known him. He's one of those guys, you know, what can I do for you? What can I do to help? How can we make this better for the sport? You know, stuff like that. That's, that's who Dave is. That's the gear he's in all the time. That's just the kind of person Dave is. And I'm incredibly lucky to have met him and to be able to call him a friend. He's a one in a million and the kind of selfless person that it's easy to start to think doesn't exist anymore. Well, he does exist here on the Rodcast today. We couldn't be more excited to bring you Dave and his incredible two-part Rodcast series to you. I know that anyone listening is going to not only enjoy this, but also be a little taken with the twists and turns that Dave's story will take. He's definitely had one of the more fascinating rides, and we can't wait to share it with you. So, without further ado, we now give you Dave Wallace Jr. Well, Mr. Wallace, yes, I start every interview the same, with the rudest question of all. Sure. Where were you born and when? Southington, Connecticut, October 2nd, 1949. And you were there for how long? Not very long. You want the whole story? I do. Okay. We do. Series of freak coincidences. Uh, my mother used to say that my mom was like the cheerleader in town, Southington, Connecticut. She was a big deal. And when a guy would ask her out, if they go on a first date, she'd say, would you ever move to California? Because I want to go to California. And all of them said no until she got to my dad. So it was your mom who was asking the men. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think my mom was being hit with the marketing for the San Fernando Valley. This would have been, uh, I was born in 49. I'm the oldest of the family. Uh, 53, my dad got a transfer to uh, Panorama, City, Panorama City, California post office. Hmm. He was a postal clerk in Connecticut. He didn't want to leave his hometown, his family. She r ran the show. They, they came to California. He was working at the post office in 1957 in Panorama City on Van Nuys Boulevard, Van Nuys and Chase, and the guy who owned San Fernando Drag Strip and Airport, which was a community service kind of thing. They had, it was uh, Fritz Burns and William Hannon, and they developed Marina Del Rey, a good part of the San Fernando Valley. They're big developers. They wanted to do something for the community. They had 80 acres out in the boonies then between Foothill and Glen Oaks in San Fernando, California. It was just pretty much dirt on a slope. So they, uh, wanted to, they wanted to build an airport, and they heard about drag racing, and I believe it to be the first purpose-built drag strip ever in 55. 
they opened, San, the airport was already there, San Fernando Airport, and right next to it, they carved out, they took the hillside, they chopped it down flat, and, and leveled it off to the Pacoima Wash, long enough to, to run a quarter mile drag strip as a community service kind of thing. It's where all the, a lot of those early hot rod, hot rod girl, any of those movies were filmed at San Fernando pretty much. So it was a real small time uh, track and uh, the, the, uh, the owners of the drag strip happened to own the building uh, that the post office rented in Panama City. So they were having trouble, they had a car club that helped them build the track, uh, the throttle merchants and after physically built the track and when it opened in 55 a couple months before Lions they um, they the a lot of the club members and their friends were were working the gate well uh, Every, every week, basically, the attendance and the entries are about the same, but the money would fluctuate dramatically at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So the, the uh, promoters, the guys who owned it, weren't car guys, but they realized pretty quick that, that, that somebody was, you know, was, was skimming. So uh, the, the, my dad tells the story. My dad was a postal clerk, and one day it was the end of the day, and the postal guys were all in there with little rubber thumb fingers they used to have for money, and they were counting the money up at the end of the day. And the, the, the guy who owned the dragster managed the operation. William Hannon walked in to make to do his mailing because they used that post office. And he looked around and he saw all these clerks right before the end of the day with their little rubber thumb things stacking up money. And he said, "Hey, you guys, you know, you guys handle money, you know." Uh, what'd you think about working at a drag strip? And there were five or six clerks and they all said the same thing, what's a drag strip? My dad had, my parent, family had no automotive anything, you know, no background. So he explained it and he said, how about if I take you guys out next Sunday? Many of you want to come. Bring, come out to the track, I'll comp you all, see what you think. I need people to handle the money part of it. That We have like a pit gate, a main gate, uh, a hot pit gate, and then a spectator crossover kind of gate. So they needed f about five guys, I guess, to handle money. So they all said, what the hell? It's a Sunday, they're going to feed us and take us out there. So they all went out there. My dad had no idea what a drag strip was. My dad had three kids in Catholic school, and the tuition was $7 each a month. So it was $21 a month, and he was supposed to clerk hustling part-time jobs, a bad job then, it really didn't pay well, trying to keep everything floating. My mom worked. So uh, all five of them said, yeah, it was $20 a Sunday. And that seemed like big money in 1957 when my dad went to work there. So he worked there on a gate, taking money, and we would drive out there every week. We had a 52 Chevy, one car in the family, and after 8.30 mass and donuts and coffee next door at the hall, my dad and the whole family would pile into the 52 Chevy, and when we got close to the drag strip, my mom would say every time, children, we're almost to the drag strip, roll up the windows and lock the doors. Because she'd see all these scary looking guys with the cigarettes in their sleeves and, you know, chicks, and it was just like one of those movies, you know, those, those exploitation movies. Yeah. So. Uh, Every, every time we went, it'd be like, can I stay, can I stay, can I stay? But I was you know, six, six years old when he started in 55. And then uh, in 57, uh, the guy who was typing up the results and sending them into Drag News, the weekly paper every week, was unreliable or something happened. And Harry Hibbler was uh, the manager, the track manager, and he asked of the crew, the 11 guys that ran the track, can anybody type? And my dad was the only one that knew how to type. So he goes, you're, you're on the, not on the gate anymore. You're going to type up the results and handle trophies. You're the trophy guy. Mm -hmm. So uh, in 57, when I was about seven or eight, my dad became the trophy guy and, and, and started taking 
Polaroid pictures because he thought, well, these guys deserve some ink like the big tracks and I don't process film or anything, but if I shoot Polaroids, when I send the story in special delivery on Monday morning at six o'clock after every week with the results, I'll type up a little story and I'll send Polaroid pictures. That way it's the track got him a used Polaroid camera and he started sending in pictures because he felt like these guys deserved it. The other Lions drag strip and all these other San Gabriel, they Pomona, they all had pictures and we didn't have any. Mm -hmm. So I really was on the mission then because he was on the star line, you know. So I was just like, can I stay? Can I stay? No, you can't stay here. Roll up the windows and lock the doors, you know. So uh, when I was, uh, I guess, 11, my mom let me stay after, you know, bagging her. And I'll never forget the thing that really tipped me over was the hot car pits were at the other end of the track, uh, near the finish line. So all I saw was the gassers and stuff, you know, and, and the pits. And that was pretty cool. Everybody had a 55 Chevy. But I didn't even know about the dragsters, really. I didn't, wasn't really aware of them. So when I was about 10, we went to drop my dad off at the trophy booth on a Sunday morning, and the Isky Clown was there, Dick Guyette's drag car. And it was a, a raffle or something, bright red-orange with a big chrome key in the back, the push bar. And mm. to a kid, you know, that was just like so bitching, like, look at this thing gleaming in the sun. And what's, what, what's that? Because they were always at the other end, and we never stayed. So I was just hooked on dragsters from that moment on. Every magazine, I used to ride my bike down to Panama City at Thrifty Drugstore, they threw me out, you know, read all the magazines, and if they, before they throw me out, I'd buy a nickel ice cream cone, so then I was a customer, and then I felt like I could, like, read another magazine or two before, okay, kid, you're done with your ice cream cone, get out of here, but totally got me hooked on the whole deal, so when I was 11, I was out there hanging, I used to uh, take the, he'd be on the ladder taking pictures with a Polaroid, and he'd hand me the, the, uh, the, the photo before it developed, you know, the, the thing with the cover on it. And then I'd count to 60 seconds, whatever it was, and I'd pull the tab off, and I, he let me goop them. They had the pink goop that used to do uh, mm. with Polaroids. That was my job. He'd hand them down to me from the ladder, and i standing on the starting line with fuel cars and stuff at, like, 10, probably, 10, 11. My God. So I was there every week. You know, I was just hooked on it, totally hooked on it. And uh, uh, then... Uh, one day, the, the time slip guy was unreliable. I think he was a drinker. So Harry, was, was, Harry Hitler was pretty unhappy with the manager because the guy would either come late or not at all. And he, he had a time slip booth. And there was only 11 guys running the whole track. So when somebody was gone, everybody had to fill in and really screwed things up for the day, Sunday. So uh, he was moaning to my, to, in general that we, this guy was just a loser and he couldn't rely on my dad. I goes, why don't you let David do it? He's here every week. Let Junior do it. He's, well, how old is he? He's 11. Uh, Hitler's like, I don't know. And he goes, well, you know, he, 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 you know, it's just time slips. It was single lane timing. At the end of single lane timing, so you really had to keep track of one set of time. So you're in a little pillbox between the push, fire up the push start road for the hot cars, the return road for the stockers with their fender wall headers banging right in your ear, a little pillbox that was sunk into the ground. And the drag strip was right there. It was like the best seat in the house. So... I, you know, the only record of anything then was that time slip. Nobody was keeping track. So as soon as the cars cleared the lights, there were no burnouts then, and the guy in the tower cleared the clocks, that was the end of the record. Next pair staged, no burnouts. Next pair ran. Ran off like that all day. So the guy in the time slip booth had to be on. He had to take the numbers for both cars. If it was eliminations, figure out which car won. 
X that lane, get the ET and speed. And the only way, there was a squawk box, a little military squawk box. This isn't that long after World War II. And it was in this pillbox. Mm. And, and it had a lever on it where I could talk to the tower, but you weren't supposed to really do that. So all I was doing was listen to the communication of the tower. That was the only record of the run. So if you screwed something up or checked the wrong box, Dick Landy or whoever was coming back on the return road is going to be pissed off. He, he won the race and this dumb kid X'd it. So I took it real seriously. Then they went to dual lane timing, which was like, oh man, twice as much to deal with. Yet left lane, right lane now, ET and speed, having to listen for all this. And I remember one of the first times I did it, it had rained, so the squawk box had filled up with water. I guess it was probably sunk into the ground about three feet, and it was probably two and a half feet of water in there. So Harry said, just put your feet up on the you know, put your feet up on the table here and don't worry about it. Well, I, I, there was enough moisture in there that I, when I hit the squawk box, it had some kind of plastic tab on the end and it was long gone. And so it was all metal. And I remember I touched that thing one time, the metal to talk to the tower, and I thought, sure, I was going to die. I was in there like stuck to this thing, shaking. And it was like, you know, occupational hazard was this squawk box. <laughs> so... Uh, that was, my that was my job, to hand the time slips to, to the guy, but it was such a bitchin' job. 50 cents an hour, and, and that's pretty good dough in 61. Most of my friends would make that in a day or something, you know? So uh, I was just hooked, and then uh, my dad, uh, I started writing the stories for on his, uh, on Father's Day in 64, I was 14, and my mom was always ragging on him because he'd come home from the track and have to write his story, and he'd work sometimes all night, he had a carbon paper, a couple different drag tabloids that time, so, and he'd have to get to the post office before six when he went to work to make the special delivery drop to get it to drag news in somewhere in LA later that day so they could go to press on uh, Tuesday and the paper would be out on Wednesday. So. Uh, so I, I was writing in school, and I liked writing. I thought I would probably be a good you know, sports reporter someday or something. I was 14. So, I, so my mom was always ragging on because they could never go out on Sunday for dinner, anniversaries, anything. So it was Father's Day. So my mom had been ragging. I mean, it would be really nice if we go out to dinner you know, once in a while. And so I said, look, I'll write the story for you. I'll write it out longhand, and I'll have it ready for you when you come back from dinner. You know, I'll just bang it right out, and, then, and I'll do it for you if you want. And he goes, okay, that might be okay. I'll retype it if, it if it's not good or something. So they went out to dinner and had a good time. I spent all night writing the story. When my dad got up at 5 in the morning or whatever, I was still, you know, by the, I typed up all the results and the carbon paper and stuff because I, 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 or no, I hadn't yet. I'm sorry. Take that back. I hadn't learned to type yet. So I wrote it all out longhand on a legal pad. He got home and said, oh, shit, you're like, this is going to take you forever. I'll see you in the morning. I'll get up early and I'll type whatever you have. So I'm still working on this story on a Monday morning school day when he, or probably out of school because it was June. So he got up and he typed the story up, and it ran. It's my first byline. It's in Drag News. And I was, you know, pretty proud of myself, but he told me right away, he goes, You're not gonna, we're not going to do this again. I said, well, I'm sorry. Was this, did the story suck or what? And he goes, no. It's just, this is just too much work for me. He goes, if you want to do this job, you need to learn to type. I don't have time to teach you. You're just going to have to learn. So I took a summer school class, screwed up my whole summer from... 14 to 15 at James Monroe High School in Sepulveda, California. I took this typing class, manual typewriters, of course, just so I could do it. So then I started doing the stories for him, and he'd give me five bucks a week, and I'd, I'd work all night Sunday night, and I'd pretend to go to school on Monday most days, and I'd go somewhere and sleep a lot of times, the beach a lot of times. And I had terrible attendance, terrible grades, and they hadn't really figured this out yet, you know, that this was the problem. So, uh, 
we went on vacation to, to Connecticut in uh, the summer of 65 and I got in a head-on crash. I was riding with a guy and we were going out to Connecticut Dragway in East Haddam and I was with, with a cousin's, uh, had a Corvair, a pretty fast Corvair that was like L-stock or something, four-speed car. And uh, we were driving, his buddy was driving, the, the, his friend who drove the car at the drags, and he was hauling ass on this two-lane road on a Sunday morning. We came around the corner and we hit a 57 Chevy headlight to headlight. The guy was coming back from church with his grandmother. She was impaled in the windshield, the, the Corvair crushed right to the what would have been the firewall. I was in the back seat. I had my feet under the front seat, fortunately, because I hit my head on the roof and kinked the roof, but I didn't go out the windshield because my uh, my... My ankles and my, my feet, the top of my feet caught me under the seat and ripped the skin down, uh, pretty much down to the bone, but it kept me in the car. Everybody's moaning and out there in the, you know, I never got oh the drag strip, God. never saw the drag strip. And side story, the, the, they call the doctor at Sunday, the doctors at the, the doctors at the golf course. We moved from there in 53, this is 1965. They call the doctor out, Dr. Dort. He comes racing over from the golf course and he's checking everybody out and taking care of this old lady who was really messed up. She didn't die, but she was really in bad shape. And blood, and guts, and just, just horrible Sunday afternoon. He's asked me my name, he's filling out the form, and he goes, David Wallace, David Wallace. He goes, I knew a David Wallace here. He worked for the post office. I knew the family. He moved to, moved to California about 10, 12 years ago. And it was, he delivered me, the same, oh, the same guy. First wow. time I'd seen him probably since then, right? Wow. So anyway, because I got stuck there, I couldn't ride. We had a 64 Impala, five people in the family. And instead of coming home the next week or whatever it was, I couldn't bend my leg. Nobody thought about flying then, that expense. That was nobody in my family. I don't think I'd flown anywhere. And so we got stuck there for a couple extra weeks. And so uh, my dad called to talk to Hibbler and said, hey, we're both stuck here. You know, we're, we're stuck here for a couple weeks. Well, when we got back about three weeks later, uh, he was getting ready to go to work, and Saturday night, Hibbler called and said, don't bother coming out, we replaced you. You know, we, we, this guy, other guy that worked on the crew wanted that job. He thought it'd be easier to be in a starter and all the stuff he was doing. So he's doing the stories and the photos, and thanks anyway. So I was really upset because my dad was such a loyal trooper, and I was just the guy writing the stories for five bucks a week. My dad was still the trophy guy, 65. So about maybe four or five or six weeks later, Harry Hibbler calls the house and he wants to talk to Junior. So, you know, hello, what, what, I'm still pissed. For, this is unfair that this happened to my dad, you know. And uh, he goes, listen, uh, the new guy isn't working out. Uh, how about you come and do your dad's, you do everything. Be the trophy guy, it's 20 bucks a week. You get the 20 bucks a week, do the tro everything you've been doing. Don't worry about the photos, but we need somebody to write the stories and this isn't working out with this guy. So I was, at first I was like, no, I didn't. I was so upset about my dad, what happened to him. And then, so I got off the phone and what was that about? Well, Harry Hibbler, I told him to pack sand, you know, I mean, I, after what happened to you and blah, blah, My dad goes, listen, if this is what you want to do, you need to call him back and tell him, yes, you'll do it. And I'll, we'll drive you out to the track till you turn 16. And we'll, we'll make sure you get there. You know, you should do this. So I guess I was about uh, a few months shy of my 16th birthday, probably. So every Sunday, as much as my dad resented what they'd done and everything, he or my mom would drive me out to the track after 8.30 mass and drop me off. And either one of the other guys would take me home, one of the other employees, or they'd come pick me up. So that was my big break, was my dad getting fired. That accident was my big break, really. And then I worked at San Fernando to skip ahead, writing the stories. Then I bought a... Uh, 
a guy had a, a Formula S Barracuda, 65 Barracuda. He ran in D stock because it was a 273 solid lifter car, but it had the dual four barrels, dual carters, the, which was like a factory option. So instead of being K stock or something, you were way up in D stock. Thing hauled ass. It was a 13 second car in 65, but it was a used up race car, and I didn't know any better. It had an art car, hydro, manual, reverse valve body. You know, he took, he said, the guy said, listen, I'm going to put the 323 gears back in it. I'm going to put the single four barrel back on it. It came with, you can keep the fender well headers, which were exhaust engineering's prototype. They had about 800 welds in them, all little short pieces that went straight up under the hood and then straight down, you know. Oh, wow. And it still had the cam in it and saw lifters that I had to set, but it was just a terrible combination. You know, I couldn't get it in the 14s, but I wanted to be a racer. So Harry wouldn't let you drive if you raced. So I quit my job when I was, uh, I guess 17, senior in high school, because I wanted to be a, I wanted to race the car every Sunday, and you couldn't do it if you worked there. Oh, you couldn't work there. Yeah, you race. couldn't do both. Even oh. though he did under, because uh, he wore a mask and drove fuel cars, nobody knew it was him. You know, mm. he would hop in one once in a while. So I was going to be a racer. So about the third or fourth Sunday, I blew the output shaft in a big way. You know, I'm out the track trying to get the 14s, but because it was such an odd thing, huge cam. Set up for nine, dual four barrels on it, 323 yeah. rear, but boy, it sounded bitch. And it was, you know, talking about blowing up. So I was really cool. Nobody wanted to race it because it was shaking you know, at the track. I mean, it, you know, any muscle car would have pretty much beat me, but, but I was cool. So when I broke the, tra the trans art car wanted, I forget how much money to replace it with a torque flight like he had. So I went and got a stock, had a shop that I knew. They put a stock torque flight, which wasn't the same. You know, it was just sluggy, and then it was really screwed up. Had a high stall converter, a stock transmission, 323 gears. It was just hopeless. So my racing career was basically over because it slowed down. I didn't want to go out there and get you know beat every week, but I was too proud to go out and hang around because I'd quit my job for this, you know. So I, it was really depressing. I was a senior in high school, and this is what I always wanted to do. I hadn't sold any uh, magazine stories or anything yet. I just pretty much gave up on the whole thing. And Ralph Goodall, my uh, hero, my journalistic hero, was the, wrote the story Saturday Night at Lions. My extent of my career aspirations was to someday write the Lions Saturday Night story. Everybody read it. Man, that would be so cool. How I would get there, I don't know. I've just screwed up my whole career. My car is a piece of shit. You know, nothing's working out here. And uh, my, my sister worked at the hot dog stand by then. My brother sold drag news. My sister worked at the hot dog stand. All three kids went to the drags with my dad every Sunday, except me now. So uh, my sister comes home one day and goes, uh, you know, this old guy came, came up to snack bar and was looking for you and said he might have a job for you. And, uh, you know, I wrote his name down and his phone number, and he said to give him a call. And it's Ralph Goodall, the Lions reporter. I'm like, what could this be about, you know? So I call him up right away, and he goes, listen, my Sunday guy, I got rid of my Sunday guy who wrote the bracket racing, and they had club racing and stuff at Lions. It was huge. So the notes from Ralph to call Ralph Goodall, who I'd never, never met or anything. So I call him up, and... Uh, uh, he goes, listen, my Sunday guy quit or I fired him or something. I need somebody right away to come write the Sunday stories, but it's just the ET brackets, which were new then, and uh, class racing, uh, you know, they had heads up club competition mostly. Different clubs would challenge each other. It's just not the Saturday night gig. It's just the sportsman stuff. I said, great. I'm 45 minutes away. San Diego Freeway then, 45 miles, was 45 minutes. There was never any traffic or anything like that. Just open, San Diego Freeway at 405. So I started doing the Sunday 
result, and I, I was good enough for the Sunday thing that nobody read. That, that I, I was okay with that, you know. What I mean, I, but I was still getting my chops, you know. What I mean, so I'd come home every same old deal. Come home on Sunday from Lions, stay up most of the night, write the story. And at that time, there were uh, three weekly papers, and I don't know why, but I thought I should write three different stories for the three different papers, not realizing till like came the editor ten years later that everybody just sent the same story to everybody, and then maybe the editor rewrote it or changed it. I, I just didn't occur to me that you could. It was like seemed like plagiarism or something to send the same story. My dad did the same thing earlier, but there were more papers now, so I'd type three stories, stay up all night, miss school, you know, screw, totally screwed up my any chance of an academic life or anything. I'm a probably I guess I'm a senior now. I'm 17 when I got this job, and then uh, you still have the Barracuda, by the way. I in uh, until. Uh, October of 68, I got a brand new Roadrunner. It was the third one I ever saw. I ordered it based on the 68s, and then the 69 was even bitchiner. So I had to make a payment of $82 a month in this part-time job, plus I was, uh, was, I guess I was still in high, I just got out of high school and was working at the phone company. So I had a part-time job at Lyons that basically made my car payment. I think it was 25 bucks a week at Lyons. It was like a $5 raise. So it was $100 a month that made my car payment for this brand new Roadrunner when I was 18. So, uh, so were you in high school? When I was you had still. That I was car? no. I was just out. I guess I graduated in June and ordered the car that summer, based on uh, I guess when I got the Lions job, probably the end of uh, the summer of '67, and uh, seemed like '67, something there, '68. I guess I was just out of school and uh, working at the phone company full time, and then I had this part time job, so I, I could make the payment. So the '69s were prettier than the '68s, I thought. And the 383, you know, torch red, four speed, 355 rear. You know, FM radio, two speakers, that was pretty much the package. And, you know, it was just, you know, have it, four-speed car. So I had this brand-new wow. car that I drove to Lions. Every, I loved it. And I get a call from C.J. Hart, who I, of course, met because I worked there. But I worked for Ralph, really, the PR guy. He calls and goes, Ralph's history. You know, Ralph's out of here. I need you Saturday. I need you to come Saturday night. You know, you do Saturday night and Sunday. Well, shit, you know, I was eight, just turned 18, probably 17, almost 18, and it was my dream job. I was not good enough to do the job, but of course, I didn't want to say, he didn't really give me an option. You see, you need to be here Saturday, too. So I didn't want to say no and then lose my Sunday deal and not be able to make the $82 car payment. So I started writing the Saturday stories when I was, I, I guess I just turned 18 or was 17 or something. And uh, man, that was the, you know, I wasn't good enough for it, but I did it. And, I, and that, that, that was huge for me, obviously, you know. So uh, everything was going swimmingly, and I got my draft notice in June of 69. Mm. And I had a new roadrunner and girlfriends and living in my own apartment in Van Nuys, right off the boulevard, right off Van Nuys Boulevard, half a block. My dream, work at Lions, live on Van Nuys Boulevard. What could be better than that? Oh, my God, racing everywhere, all, all around my, you. My dad had said when I got the roadrunner, he made me a deal. He said, if you get drafted, which seemed likely because they were taking everybody in 69, I wasn't going to school. Uh, he said, when you get drafted, I'll make your $82 payment and I'll drive the car to work and stuff till you get back. My dad wasn't a gearhead, but he liked the car. He never had a new car. This is a new car. The you know, first new car in the family was my Roadrunner. <laughs> so uh, I said, okay, deal. Well, when I got drafted, my mom said, no deal. You're not going to drive that thing, that noisy, fast car around. No, we don't need that. We need a four-door sedan and a Chevrolet, preferably, and no. So I had to sell it. Some attorney's kid with a def college deferment 
had to sell the car to him, ran an ad, drafted, still got the Valley News and Green Sheet, had to sell the car to this idiot. He was a total jerk. First thing he did, he had to go to his dad's law office to get his dad to sign the pink slip or whatever. I had never parked within 100 yards of another car the whole time I had it. I went out at lunch every day at the phone company and washed my car every single day. Me and the guy with the black GTO out there shamming out every day with a dirty or not, right? He pulls it between two cars, must have been six inches on each side, bang! First time, it was like nobody ever driven the car. Nobody, you know, you know, it just broke my heart. And this guy was a jerk, and his dad was a jerk, and you know, so there went the Roadrunner. And, it's and like this story couldn't be worse. Eight weeks later, I was in uh, Georgia at the military police academy, and eight weeks after that, I was in Saigon, you know, in Cameron Bay, Vietnam. So my life went from being absolutely perfect at in the beginning of July to the worst you could imagine in, in November, you know. So uh, that was it. And that was, my, uh, that was my career to that point. And I got out of the service and it took me, went, went to work back east at a speed shop and it, I, I just, my head wasn't in it anymore. I was just knocked off track. I'd like to hear more about your Vietnam experience, if that's okay with you, because you, you've told me about it and it's very unique. It is unique, yeah, yeah, okay. But before, and we're rolling, just so you know. Okay. Um, I want to just back up a little bit because you, the way you talked about Ralph Goodall, am I saying his name right? Um, what, what would you say you learned from him? Because it sounds to me like he was mm. the first guy you were really around who was a quote-unquote like professional level writer. It was, you it already was. admired what he was doing. I mean, do you feel like his style got into you for a while, or probably what like, do you have to say about that? Probably like every musician or anybody else, you know, you, you imitate. Like when I was a kid, I would listen to uh, Dodger games because I thought I'd be a sportscaster someday. No idea how to go about it, of course. But I had a transistor radio, Japanese transistor radio, when those first came out that you weren't, I wasn't supposed to listen to at night. I would put it under my pillow. I would actually with a flashlight I would keep us inning score of the game of the Dodger game from beginning to end hits errors wild pitches whatever and the next day I before I read Jim Murray's column or anybody else's I uh, often would write a story would write a story about the baseball game and then I would read the story that came out in the paper just to see how I you know stacked up and of course I read you know, all the car magazines as I got older I could buy them and I couldn't ever imagine how a typo or a bad word could get in there. You know, I was good in English, but I just couldn't imagine how Robert E. Peterson would let a comma slip or double negative or whatever it was, a dangling participle, you know, because I had Catholic school, you know, basic education. So uh, I would actually practice like that, you know, doing that stuff. And uh, Ralph had this amazing style that I, I imitated. The first time I met him, we talk about... Uh, you talk about when you meet your heroes, how you, you have the speech planned, and then you get there and go, bleh, bleh. so Ralph, uh, and I, I, they were having the first PDA meet in 67, and they had a press thing during the week. It was during the summer, July, so I had the day off, you know, the, whatever it was, Wednesday or something. So I boldly called Lions Drag Strip up and asked whoever answered the phone, I, I want to get a press pass, I want to come and come to your deal. I never, I've been to Lions with my dad, probably on my own a couple of times, but you know. So I went to this, it was on the starting line, they had uh, 
they had the, a lot of the big hitter fuel cars there, and they did a, what I understood. I didn't know what a media day was all about, and uh, they had a media day with you know uh, drinks and beer and free food, and it was all these hobnobbing. So I went up to Ralph Goodall and embarrassed myself. I said. Uh, I said, Ralph, I'm Dave Wallace. I write the story for San Fernando. And he was real kind. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know who you are. And your dad did it before. Yeah, yeah. And I go, I, I steal from you every chance I get, and thinking it was a, you know, like a compliment. And he you know, had something else to do all of a sudden. One of those deals, you know, he, you know, and, I, and I really regret it all the way home, driving home to in my Roadrunner, or at the time, my Barracuda back to the valley 45 minutes. I thought, what a dumbass I am. Geez, here, you know, here I, I Lions, my dream job, my dream guy, and I just completely screwed myself for life, you know. And so uh, Ralph was just, uh, the way Ralph wrote his stories, the, the, the Top Fuel final, the, the feature event of the thing wouldn't come till the end of the story. He would build these pictures. He would paint the picture of the fumes and the flames and he all these guys' nicknames, almost all the nicknames that came out of Southern California were, were from, from his typewriter, really. And uh, he was just uh, a tremendous writer. Uh, his dad was Ralph Goodall Sr., who won the Masters, golf, golfer, major golfer. Ralph was a golfer. And Ralph was a great photographer and a really good writer, really great. And that was the style that me and probably everybody else imitated because everybody went right to the lion's story every week. Mm. And that, that was my, my you know, inspiration kind of. And that's how I started off. I wouldn't, I'd save the, the ending till the end of the story. You know, instead of writing like a news story, Don Perone beat Tom McEwen in the final round, then, then tell the rest of the story. I, I would do what Ralph did. You know, the dew was coming in and the track was wet in Lions. Octobon asphalt bites eight different ways and the pits were full and the flames were this and, you know, all that. That's the way he yeah. did it. It was the wrong way to write a news story, but I didn't know any better. That was what I knew, like a composition, like creative writing. So Ralph was, and then he wound up hiring me and being, you know, really influential in my life. And... Uh, it was a long story about him going away, but anyway. Uh, uh, well, apparently you didn't turn him off too badly. I guess he needed help, and at least he knew I, could, I would get it done. I'm sure he called the editors. Does this guy get his stuff in every week? Is it spelled right? And years later, when I became the editor in 75, I realized I was probably sending the cleanest copy, and I was, there was three or four carbon paper. Carp, you know, uh, onion skin paper, have to peel the carbon sheets, you'd have to erase every one and then retype every one. I was so anal about it, and if it was too messy, I'd start over in the middle of the night on Sunday night. I'd start over, even with the bracket racing stories and stuff, I just, I thought that's what was expected of a journalist, not knowing how low the standard was, you know, until years later. Mm -hmm. So anyway, uh, that was it. I went to, I got drafted, and um, I was really lucky when I, uh, when I, they were taking, uh, they were killing 300 guys a week at the end of 69. It was pretty much peak, half a million guys in Vietnam. I was a 50s kid. I believed that my country wouldn't send me to war unless it was a good reason. My little brother and sister were protesting, actively protesting the war. I was down on them. I chained Fonda, all these crazy communists. You know, they can't be right. Uh, and I just figured that's your duty. I was like a 50s kid, you know, war movies, that kind of stuff. So, and, your, and your parents felt the same absolutely. way? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I was living on my own, too. I moved out when I was in high, at 17, my last year of high school. So I'd been living on my own for a couple of years. I was like, what, you know, I was on my way. I, had, I was, you know, doing good. And I wanted to be right for magazines. And I started selling magazine stories. In 65, I, stole, I sold a story about top gas dragsters to uh, Modern Rod magazine. 
And that was my first magazine article. I, mean, I was so young, I rode my bicycle up to the Hughes Market looking for the magazine every week until it finally came out. And I was like, man, you know, there, it was like an eight-page story. And when I sent it in, I asked them to, uh, I said, listen, I'd like $75 for this story. You know, do whatever you want with it. And I don't care if you correct it or anything, that'd be great. I'm still waiting to get paid, which should have been some kind of an omen that, <laughs> yeah, I worked my heart out for this story. There it is, must have made 50 phone calls to North Hollywood, literally, for the next year or so. Never got a dime for, oh yeah, it's in the mail, or you know, it's gonna come, we'll take care of it. Never got a penny for and it. And how old were you again, exactly? I was 15 when I wrote it, okay. uh, 16 when it was published. Uh, in the fall, of, just turned 16 when it came out on the newsstand, I guess. I, I'm probably still 15 because I rode my bike up to the store. So I wasn't quite driving age. Got my driver's license on my 16th birthday, like everybody did then. You know, that morning, October 2nd, I was first in line at the DMV in Van Nuys, you know, for my license. Anyway, uh, so I got drafted. And I always say that that typing, when I went to a typing class I took at James Monroe High School when I was 14, saved my life, literally. Because first of all, it, my dad let me write the stories so once I learned how to type. So I gave up that summer to go to damn summer school at 8 in the morning or something, you know, for typing. But it, it got me that going. And then when I was, when I was in, uh, I w when I was in basic training, we had about 180 guys in our company, our basic training company, and I'll bet 150 of them or more were infantry or artillery, and that's what you expected. Three of us got MP school, the Military Police Academy. The other two guys washed out. They, one of them had traffic tickets and one of them had some kind of a misdemeanor. On his record, you had to be you had to be like six feet tall, certain intelligence, you know, uh, on the on their test and stuff, which isn't hard when you're drafted. I mean, that you know, it isn't hard to be a star when you're drafted. It's pretty. By '69, they were taking everybody, everybody that wasn't continuously in school from high school. They were taking or married or kids. So. Uh, I, which was a hell of a great thing to go to the military police academy, even though I had no thoughts of being a cop. It sounded better than being in the infantry. Yeah. So I went to the Military Police Academy in Fort Gordon, Georgia for eight weeks. And four months after that idiot got my roadrunner, I was a cop. I was a military policeman. I was home for, uh, I think, tw 20 days. And then to Vietnam, November 30th. You went back home to California for, for 20 Yeah, days for my leave. Uh -huh. you over. Yeah, and that's all they gave you. And then, uh, so November 30th, I was in Vietnam. And... Uh, uh, I went into Cameron Bay and didn't know, you know where you're going to go in the country. or I didn't even know where I was. When I got to Cameron Bay, I went into the office and I spun a globe. And it took me a while to find Vietnam on the map. That's how dumb you are when you're 19. And uh, I thought, damn, that was a long plane ride. Where the hell am I? 24-hour mm. plane ride with a stop in Guam or, you know, to refuel. And uh, there I am in Southeast Asia, wherever that is, you know. And that's how dumb I was. And uh, about the second or third day, they assigned me to my station, sent me off. So uh, we were going south, which was good from Camera Bay. If you went north, you're close to North Vietnam and the DMZ. If you're going south, you had a chance that you wouldn't be in the major conflict, at least. So they sent me to Saigon, to uh, MACV headquarters, General Creighton Abrams, Westmoreland before that. We were on the same compound, and my company was charged with security for General Abrams, the guy who ran the whole show, and his generals. Everybody on our base was a full bird colonel, or a general, or an MP. There were no, no other, and the morticians, that's all that was on the base. So I'm feeling pretty good, at least I'm in Saigon, and nobody's shooting at me right here. So I'm standing in line at the, standing in line to process in with other guys from other places. I'm standing in line, it's late at night, 
every sergeant I'd ever dealt with had been a horrible person up to that point. Every, every, because it was training, you know, they were brutal. Mm -hmm. Here's this E5 sergeant uh, sitting behind the desk, kind of gruff, young guy, but gruff. So uh, he, all right, you guys, fall in here, you know, get in line here, line up here where you're going to fill out some paperwork and we're going to find out what we got from you losers. That was kind of his attitude. And the second thing, next thing he said was, any drag racers here? No way. And I'm like, yes, Sergeant. And he goes, where from? I, where do you come from? I go, L.A. He goes, uh, what track did you go to? I go, well, actually, I was writing the stories at Lions Drag Strip before, you know, a few months ago before I got drafted. He goes, you know uh, Wild Wilford Boudelais' old Maverick? I go, yeah. The, like, degasser now? He goes, that was my car. Unbelievable. And he's my buddy. He, 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 he says, uh, so after we processed in, he comes and finds me. He goes, you're going to go on patrol with me. You're going to be... You're going to be my partner, my junior partner. So he, we can talk cars. And it was his second tour, so he knew all the tricks. I mean, mm. you're trying to be a cop in a, a city with thousands of deserters. People don't realize that. They had left their units in Vietnam, mm -hmm. and they weren't going to have some punk MP send them to Leavenworth for life. They'd blow you away, or, you know, they're not going to, you know, it was a dangerous place, even though you're in the city. Between the Viet Cong and a few sabotage attacks, this is a year after Tet Offensive where they came in and killed all the MPs in my company, the most decorated. I'm standing there before this guy said drag racer, and there's a plaque on the wall. Company C, 716th MP Battalion, the most decorated military police outfit in Army history. Oh, that's interesting. I'm looking. Here's the dates. This guy's dead from... Korea, 52 or whatever it was, 53. This guy's dead from Korea. This guy's dead from World War II or whatever. And then there's this, li this, this list of guys from January 1968, and they were all blown away in the Tet Offensive. It was that company. They, they, the, the Viet Cong infiltrated the compound where we were, and they just and the, and the embassy and all that in Saigon, they started blasting. It was us. And one, uh, they put a bunch of our guys into a truck. And we were kind of... Baby, we, we had a really coddled thing there. They weren't, we weren't out there shooting M16s every day. Well, they had everybody suit up. They filled up a deuce and a half with, had benches in the back, two rows of guys from my company. Come on, all hands on deck. They're, you know, we're losing Saigon, basically. Drove, the guy drove them a back way into the embassy. Guy, the Viet Cong was was there with a, some kind of a grenade launcher and fired it right into the truck and set the truck on fire and, and as the guys jumped out they mowed them down the ones that weren't that weren't already dead and I think they yeah. killed it, I've read there's books about it there I think they killed eight or nine guys in that truck and so we were the most decorated MP battalion and I was like man this is like serious I don't what am I doing here you know mm. so uh, this guy Charlie Bartron was a great guy we start talking he comes over and asks me he goes uh, he goes you know I was I was home in, uh, in July, last, this last July, and I remember when Drag News, when you wrote, you got drafted. I didn't, he didn't know who I was. Like, see, nobody reads bylines except writers. He said, I remember the guy wrote the story and said, my number's up in the bingo game, Uncle Sam's bingo game, and hopefully I'll see you all in a couple of years. He goes, I remember when that happened, and I knew his car. Wild Wilfred Boudelais was an early alcohol funny car star, had a steel Maverick with a tilt front end. This guy took the Maverick and put a Chevy in it, and everybody was down on him for putting a Chevy in a Ford. But it was like a de illegal degasser, you know. It was, it was. Uh, I remember the car. It was nothing, you know, special. But I, I knew the car, so he was all impressed, and he was my pal. And he kept telling the first sergeant, 
this guy should be the company clerk. He can write, because you had to write award certificates. You know, somebody was getting an award for whatever, you had to embellish it a little bit and type up what a great, and then the general would come and they'd have an assembly and he'd read out the, how cool you were, how brave you were, and you got your deal. So he goes, this guy could be doing the Purple Heart stuff and all that. He's a writer, I know he's a writer, he could do it. So he talked the first sergeant into kind of giving me an audition and I could type 60 words a minute on a manual typewriter and boy, I was really good on that test because I didn't want to be out there fighting with gorillas, you know, in bars every night. So. Pretty early on, typing is what saved me. I got the job as company clerk. So, and the company clerk had a lot of control, a lot of power. You know, you, you weren't subject to a lot of things because the captain needed you, the guy who ran the company, the first sergeant needed you to make them look good on all their reports. So, so I was happy to have that job, and that that was I, I really felt like it saved my life uh, being uh, being the company clerk. So I was there. Uh, I extended in Vietnam. To get out early, if you if you uh, if you, if you left Vietnam within five months of your two-year discharge date, you got a five-month early out. So I extended nine weeks uh, in Vietnam, nine years beyond my my uh, nine nine uh, weeks beyond my one year. So uh, I threw a Tet offensive, and uh, I was there 435 days. I always say who's counting, and then I got out in February of '71 and went back to Lyons. And I was, you know, I picked up my old job. Somebody had been doing it while I was gone. Man, everything was going great for about a month. And then C.J. Hart gets in this big fight with the Lions Board of Directors, tells him he's leaving. He'd been there from 63. So here we are, eight years later, and he's leaving. A month after I get back, mm. I'm back in the groove. You know, I figure this is gonna be great. So everybody on the crew at Lions, pretty good sized crew, was gonna quit in, in support of C.J. Hart. Like if, if C.J. goes, we're all going. Steve Evans was going to come in and replace him. He says, if Hart's going, we're all going. So time comes. It was like the Dylan song. I looked behind me, and there was, there was no one to bluff. Me, Hart, his wife, his two kids left, and nobody else quit. We all walked out real proud, looking behind us, like, where's everybody else? There, nobody else came. They all stayed there after we all voted to leave with him and support. Mm -hmm. So there again, that was smart, you know. I'm out of my deal again, you know. I don't have a job. A set, you know, I'm not working at the track. So I figured that was it, you know? I figured that was for being a drag racing journalist, and it was booming then. There were magazines, you could make a living at it. You know, writing or photography, it was, it was pretty good then. And it just, uh, I just kinda just got depressed about it. I was working at a phone company, I hated it. Uh, so been you went back to that job as well. I did, and it was, it was a drag. General Telephone had bought the little phone company that I worked for, California Water and Telephone in San Fernando. So when I left, it was a casual little, place, lots of windows to look out of. All the operators for the San Fernando Valley, all the female operators were in that building and just a few guys. It was just a great place to work. I came back, they'd, they'd uh, f uh, filled in all the windows. They said for security, for terrorism or whatever at the phone company. It was real rigid. It was all, it was a big corporation, General Telephone at the time, you know, second to Ma Bell, really. And it was just miserable. And I, I didn't want to cut my hair. I had a haircut every fucking week for, you know, uh, you know, two years. I didn't want to make any haircuts particularly. I looked like an idiot, you know, with, with you know, white sidewalls. And everybody else had long hair, you know. Really, girls would look at you like, what's wrong with you, you know. So uh, <laughs> I, uh, I took a job in Maryland to work in a speed shop. Guy was open, a friend of mine was opening, had a successful speed shop uh, in uh, Beltsville, Maryland. And they were going to open a second store in Frederick. So he said, why don't you come back here and 
and uh, run this. I'll train you. We'll work in the store with me. We'd had a little speed shop out in Newhall here, but it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a going thing when I first got out of the military, but I had a pretty good idea what happened. So I went back there. I just wanted to kind of blow up my life, kind of. I, I, a phone company, they're going, just take a leave of absence. You can have a six-month leave of absence. Then you can come back. No questions asked. I said, if I do that, I'll think about it for six months. It'll torture me. I really need to get out of this deal. So I had this opportunity to blow up my life, basically. I had a Datsun pickup, filled it up with a bunch of with everything I wanted to take with me, and drove back to Maryland and was there 14 months. And I ran the store as planned. The other guy opened the new store. Uh, and then uh, they decided it wasn't working very well, the new store. And the, my buddy came back to manage my store. So I was working like half time. And it was just miserable. I was staying with friends. I didn't have enough money to leave. I didn't have enough money there to do anything to become a part-time job again. Mm. And I was just, I was working one night. I remember WHFS in Washington, D.C. It was a great, great radio station. And as if I wasn't depressed enough, this is uh, 72. I'm listening to the radio one night. Sam Stone comes on the radio, this song. I was like, I was by myself. I worked 9 to 9 in the speed shop, 9 in the morning to 9 at night. Saturday's 9 to 6. I'm sitting there and this song comes on by John Prine about the Vietnam experience. And it, it wasn't my Vietnam experience, but it just like gave me chills. I was already feeling homesick and crappy. It's like my life is just, you know, God, what, what, what? My life's over. I'm 22 years old and it's over. I'm not doing anything I want to do. One day the phone rings and it's C.J. Hart, whose wife wrote me letters in Vietnam more than my family did. Sent me cookies. They were so proud of me for not being a draft dodger for go, going ahead and doing my duty, you know, as a mm -hmm. traditional guy. So he goes, uh, I'm running Orange County now, and my, I don't like the PR guy, you know, we're not getting along, I want you to do it. I said, well, hard, I've never done any of that. Like what? He goes, you gotta write radio spots, do all the PR, host the press, write the stories like you did. You know, it's a, it's a full-time job at Orange County Raceway. He says, there's two offices in the bottom of the tower. I got one, you'll have the other one. So, wow. I forgot what the pay was. It was pretty good, you know, for what I was used to. I said, I said, boy, that's just too good to be true. I had a girlfriend back there, apartment, you know. And uh, he goes, there's one catch. He, this is like a, probably a Saturday. He goes, you got to be here by Thursday because we're doing this promotion for this big race and you need to be here. I think it was the PDA meet or something. He says, you got to be here by Thursday. I said, okay. You know, go home, tell my girlfriend, you, uh, you can have the beanbag chairs. You know, it wasn't much else. I had, a, I had a 73 Chevy pickup, lowered a new one. I had a tarp over the top. Everything that would fit under that tarp is what I took with me, and that's all. So came back, got a root canal in Oklahoma City on the way back. My tooth started hurting. I'm racing to come back. I left there with about 200 bucks, I think. I get to Oklahoma City driving pretty much nonstop trying to get back in time. And uh, I, get, I get at this motel, and I tell the lady, man, I got, oh, I'm doing terrible. She goes, what's wrong with you? I got, I got this massive toothache. I've never had anything like this before. I don't know what's wrong with me. I've got to get to Orange County, California by Thursday, and this is probably you know, Monday night or Tuesday or something. I said, I got this tooth. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm blah, blah. She goes, my son-in-law is a dentist. Oh, my God. Let me call him up. She gets him out at 10 o'clock at night. He opens up his office for me and gives me a root canal on the spot. Mm. It took... 120 of my $200 or whatever I had. Barely had enough to buy gas to get home, you know. But sure enough, I pulled in really tired on Thursday, went to work, dream job, Orange County Ra International Raceway, and uh, that was killer for me. It was, it was great. So from uh, 70, I guess I was 73 to 75, I did that job for two years, lasted two ownership changes, 
uh, and then uh, about I just got the check started bounce that Larry Huff, the pro stock racer, field racer, was running it. He'd taken it over from AHRA, and checks were bouncing, and things just weren't looking good. So I would go to Drag News every week with my story, and I got to know Doris Herbert, the, ed the editor publisher, and she had a young boyfriend, or maybe husband by then, who really wasn't qualified. He'd be the first one to tell you, but he was, he was with her, and she made him the editor, but he didn't have any idea what was going on. Guy from Wisconsin, real cheesehead, not a car guy. So she was getting complaints about the papers, so I knew that. So I turned my story and went to ask, you guys aren't looking for any help, are you? And she goes, as a matter of fact, I might be. You know, what, do you, what do you need? I go, well, things are looking a little shaky in Orange County just between us, and they're paying me 200 a week. So I'd work for that. She goes, oh, no. The most I could pay is 120 And stupidly, it was like, okay, I'll take it. So I had to sell my Chevy truck because I couldn't make the $80 payment or whatever it was. And I went to work for Drag News, uh, 1975, where I'd started out years earlier. And that, I was the editor there at One Man Band for two years, 73 to 75. That's where I learned that people were sending stories in literally hand scrawled on shopping bags. And I, here I'd been typing in you know, yeah. 10 years or 12 years earlier racing and making everything just bitching, you know. So that was a great experience because I had to put out a paper by myself. And the deal was that she'd worked out a deal with the Penny Saver, which was the, one of the, the first shopper I ever saw. They printed millions, Orange County. Everybody, you know, everybody got one, the free classifieds. So she worked out a deal that she did, all she paid for was nothing, I think. They used drag news and boat news every two weeks when it came out to set up the press to get the registration and the ink and the colors right to print the penny saver. They would, drag news and boat news were the test run because the 20 or 30,000 that they would run was nothing for them. That's what it took probably to get this giant press in Orange County. So she worked out a deal, basically, I think she just paid for paper and they printed it. So I always said, you, whatever color the penny saver was, the second color that week would be a two color press, meaning black and white and then one color. It'd be green, red, blue, real basic colors. At whatever color the penny saver was that week, drag news was, and if both <laughs> news printed the same week. But I had to do this thing myself. It was really intense. I, I either wrote or rewrote everything in a paper that would be 48 pages sometimes. And we, I'd work from, I'd go in there Sunday night and I wouldn't leave until Tuesday at 10. Never left the building from Sunday night till Tuesday. No sleep. I always thought it was great because she had pizza brought in and she always had coffee brewing. I'm thinking, this is a dream job, free pizza and coffee. But she was just drugging us, basically. Yeah. It was a cement tilled up with no windows. You were in there day and night, never left. You know, <laughs> still, you know, electric typewriter, but still. And then she'd set the type after I did all the stories. So I did that for... Uh, Two years, and uh, a guy took over, Don Rackman, who's dead now, uh, the beginning of 78. She decided she didn't want to put the paper out anymore, and he took over. We were out of work for about six weeks at the end of uh, 76. And again, here I am. I'm on my ass. I'm getting unemployment. Nothing's going on, right? I'd sold a couple of magazine stories, but I was not in the, nobody knew me or anything, really. And... Uh, I went to a, a Hot Rod magazine, had a, a cruise night with vans. Ford sponsored this thing with the portholes and stuff. Oh my the, God. the van thing was kind of over, but the factories didn't know it yet. They were still selling, yeah. you know, portholes and stripes and running boards and all that kind of shit. So I, I had a 55 Olds because I had to sell my 
uh, cool lower Chevy pickup. So I found a $200 54 olds first, an old lady had. And then I found a 55 olds. So I had two cars, a 54 olds 98 and a 55 olds 98. Low cars. mileage old people cars that nobody wanted. You know, nobody wanted a four-door Oldsmobile oh. then. So I said, let's go uh, to a couple of my buddies. Let's go to Van Nuys Boulevard and we'll make fun of the Hot Rod guys. Because I'd gotten to know all the Hot Rod staff guys, Jim McCraw and Gray Baskerville. Let's go and mock them. We're going to go to this on Van Nuys Boulevard, they're going to do this dog and pony show like they're really cruising. Let's take my Oldsmobile. We'll, we'll go and we'll just make fun of them. So we did. We went. They invited us to have uh, the meal with them. They had uh, somebody fed them. Chevrolet, I think, because they had a plant in Van Nuys. They, on Van Nuys Boulevard, somebody fed them. And the guys felt sorry for me, probably. And we were just dressed for going to Van Nuys Boulevard, T-shirts and jeans. And these guys were all in their uniforms. So we... We went to this real posh restaurant with my own girlfriend, Ron Hussey, photographer, who was with me the night I met John Prime. And we went to this big feed, and we're just mocking these guys. Like, you, you, you know, come on, you're such posers trying to be Van, whatever they were doing. And in the course of it, John Diana was the editor. He said, what are you doing these days? I go, well, I'm not doing anything, because they bounced my checks. As you know, I sent her a letter around with, with copies of my bad checks. And I have no work, and I just bounced the check to the IRS because I hadn't paid my IRS for three years. I finally caught up, wrote them a $770 check for three years. That bounced because my paychecks bounced, and I didn't know it. So now I've got no job, no paychecks. My girlfriend's working in a little restaurant, San Clemente, and uh, the IRS is probably going to come arrest me. This is going just great, you know. And I'm in. A, I got a 55 olds and a 54 olds. That's my my you know my what I had. So. Uh, that night, they, they, all the guys started saying, why don't we hire Wallace? You know, why don't we bring him in here? Nobody wanted to do bracket racing. Bracket racing was a thing. I'd announced bracket racing. I'd been around bracket racing my whole life. I'd run bracket cars, you know, not successfully, but you know, I knew what to do. So the John Diana said, well, the only way I could do it is if you guys don't get a raise. You know, like I can't budget him in, but if, we, if I, can, I can free up $1,000 a month for a freelancer, we'll make him our full-time freelancer, basically, no office, no responsibilities, no office hours at $1,000 a month. Looks pretty good when you're, you know, you've been making 120 a week and your checks had bounced. So they called me up. They said, come on in for an interview. Diana wants to talk to you. And McCraw and Baskerville really pushed for me and C.J. Baker because they didn't want to do, I think, they wanted somebody to test the new cars, which were all slugs in, in 77, and to do bracket racing, and nobody wanted to do that. So the guy, I come to work and the, the, the Diana says, I can't put, I can't, I don't want you so bad as I don't want popular hot running to get you. So how about this? We'll give you a thousand dollars a month. We'll use your, your own credit cards, which I didn't, which I didn't have. We'll use, use your own credit cards. We'll reimburse you for any travel expenses. No questions asked. And you have to do bracket racing America and you have to do the whole country. Mm. You can pick wherever you want to go, how many states you want to do, take all the pictures. I really wasn't a photographer, but yeah, I can take pictures. Sure. So all of a sudden, and I didn't have a credit card. I couldn't, I had no credit. I had no debt. My good friend who worked for Wells Fargo Bank, she, I think the statute of limitations have probably run out. She got me a visa and a MasterCard and she wouldn't say anything about it. Just don't worry about it. And then I looked one day on my statement and it said member since 1959 or something like that. She'd used my dad, Dave Wallace Sr., her credit, his credit somehow to get me a credit card. Thousand dollar limit on each, I wouldn't have had the job. I wouldn't, wouldn't be able to have the job. I start 
going around the country and I could type story. I could write a story so much faster than everybody else because I had newspaper experience. They were amazed. You know, they'd come up with an idea, I'd go, go into somebody's back office, bang it out in the typewriter, hand it in. They were like, whoa. And so as soon as the job opened up, a staff job, that was a deal I had to take it, and then I went on staff. So from 77 to 80, I had this great job at Hot Rod Magazine as a contributing editor and then the feature editor. And it was just as good as it, it seems. You know, there was no television really then, no cable. No internet, of course. Peterson Publishing was still the deal. You know, you had carte blanche wherever you went. People knew your byline. They recognized you when they saw you places. It was fun, especially coming from all this crap I'd been through mm -hmm. and not having any idea how to get, even though I lived just over the hill in the Sarafel Valley from Peterson, I had no idea how to get there or what to do. My family, they all thought you should be a writer, but nobody had an idea what that meant or how to do it. And I didn't know what to do, and I was... I don't think I had the confidence to go knock on the door. So really, it was just a, a lucky fluke that that happened. Mm. And then I did that till 1980, and uh, uh, I left Hot Rod because nothing was happening. I'd been passed. I was told twice I was going to be the next editor, and then two different people were made editor. And I was just, you know, I was there. I wasn't getting raises, so I figured, well, nothing's happening here. I was already 30 years old. wasn't a kid. So I quit to freelance in 1980, and then in 81, I sold uh, Lee Kelly, the head of the book division, on a drag racing history book. I did a drag racing history book, which sold really well, did a big fat 160-pager after that called Peterson's History of Drag Racing that went into bookstores. Then I did a couple books like that, projects, and freelanced. And then I, uh, I, I just freelanced from 80, 1980, I guess, until... Uh, about 88, I started an ad agency called Good Communications Incorporated, and my ex-wife and I uh, serviced a lot of automotive accounts. I had Barry Grant's account, Chris Alston's Chassis Works, Dave Braswell Corporation, JW Transmissions, uh, Angle Cams for a while. You know, just a lot of the, it was still print. It hadn't gone digital yet, and we were—I was on top of the world there, really, with the ad agency. Moved, you know, Northern California. You know, was doing really good. And uh, in 80, I, I guess in 80, uh, I did in 84, when the history books had gone good to back up a little bit, I said to Kelly, what about a drag racing magazine? There's just Superstock now. I always dreamed about having a Peterson drag racing with Peterson's distribution. Let's try this. So based on the success of the three history books I'd done, we started Drag Racing Magazine. It's a bi-monthly, 84. So from 84 to 88, it went monthly. It went bi-monthly nine times a year, I guess it was then monthly. Had great income. They reimbursed all my expenses. Same kind of deal. I'm floating around on Peterson's nickel uh, as a freelancer, and it was just really great. And then... Uh, so in the 80s, you you've basically are a publisher of sorts, would you say? No, not really. Uh, what happened is I wanted to get out of L.A., and uh, the magazine business was really not, you know, was not happening for me. So uh, in 84, I moved to Northern California, bought five acres, had a house built, moved all my cars and stuff up there, and uh, started doing more ad agency stuff print stuff than journalism because journalism was really politic politically if you weren't with the new team if they weren't your guys like anything probably they don't call you things aren't happening i thought man i got a kid now my son was born in 83 i can't be living in Cagle canyon up here in the hills for 260 a month anymore i need to probably get a house and have a real life so the way we decided to do it and to stay in the business i could be a lot of guys come out of journalism they either go into pr or advertising 
I could do this. I had a lot of connections, so I got a few accounts. My ex learned to be a graphic artist. We started Good Communications Incorporated, 80, 1984, and uh, doing ads kind of part-time. Then the ad stuff became paid a lot better than journalism, and it was a lot more predictable because I could control that. The clients all did good. They, everybody was making money. They liked what I was doing. So basically, it was like I was just trying to play catch-up. There were seven employees at one point in my ad agency, plus my ex and I managing it. So we were booming. We had 14 or 15 clients. We were, I was, you know, crazy. I would do freelance stuff and I would do stuff for the clients. I wrote a lot of tech stories. This is all before the web. So everybody still wanted print. And I rode that puppy till for really for, you know, for quite a while. Um, I guess it was, uh, geez, I'm trying to think really from 84 until 2010, I did freelance stories, but mostly it was the ad agency. And the digital stuff started coming in. I was a print guy. I lived in the boonies. It was really hard for me to, websites, all that stuff. You know, we, I, I did a little bit, but it, it, I knew I didn't have my heart in it, the digital thing so much. So we, we managed to adapt and make a living, but uh, my son was growing up, and I really, journalism was always my first love, and you know, photojournalism, photography too. So. Um, I, the, the agency thing started winding down in the, uh, around uh, 2004, 2005, as the web stuff came more and social media. None of that existed, of course, before, you know. So I thought, what I really want to do is journalism. My son was getting older, where he'd be on his own. I thought, you know, I'm going to work more into journalism and, and get out of the ad business, which I never really liked. So uh, around 2009, uh, David Freiberger at the old Peterson Publishing Company said, listen, I, I've been doing Hot Rod Deluxe. I started it. I, I've got other duties. They're kicking me upstairs. I need somebody to do Deluxe. It was his baby. I'd like you to do it. I said, you know, I really don't have the background in early cars to do that. I really don't, you know, street rods and stuff. I always liked them, but, you know, drag racing was more my thing, new car stuff. I, I really didn't have that. He kept, he kept after me. You can do this. I'll help you. I'll be there for you. Anything you need, I'll be there for you. Ah, nah, nah, nah. So uh, the end of 2010, I was, the agency thing had pretty much died off, and I thought that'd be, oh, I could do that. I could do it from afar, you know, contract basis, like I did Drag Racing Magazine. I could probably do that. So it took a while to negotiate. Doug Evans, the, we were a little bit apart on money because I was going to have to come down here once a month. I hated coming to LA. I finally got away from LA and moved to the country. And now this is going to drag me back down here. You know? mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, bi-monthly magazine, all the research and stuff. All the archives are here. All the research material is in LA. So I would have to come back for maybe 10 days a month. And I did not want to do that. So I, it had to pay good. So we were a little bit apart on money. Finally, the big VP guy, Doug Evans, who's also the guy that saved the archive, that managed to get the archive brought over here to Peterson and engineered all these contracts to make this happen. Everything that's happening right now with the film, the good place the film's in. He was the guy, v vice president at Peterson. Mm. He got involved and said, how much, how far apart are we on money? I, we'll handle it. I'll tell the ad guys to sell another ad every month. You know, we need Freiburger to do these other things. He's a visionary, as he's proved to be. You know, we need to free him up. You're the guy. He doesn't want to give it to anybody else, blah, blah. So I said, okay, if you're going to help me, Freiberger, whenever I need any help, I'll take this. So I come down here, sign a contract for a year, uh, the end of 2010. 
to do Hot Rod, take over Hot Rod Deluxe. He hands me one, I say, okay, give me all your box of stories that haven't run yet. He gives me one envelope. It's a pack and all story about custom cars. I go, where's everything else? He goes, I do this just in time. I call guys like you and I need something and I need it by Friday and they make it happen. You know, basically you're on your own. The book, the book ships in six weeks. It was two weeks into the cycle, bi-monthly. You can oh do a magazine God. in six weeks about Model A's and T's and 32's and stuff I really wasn't that familiar with and he gave me one envelope. I said, okay, you're there for me, right? Oh yeah, just call me. That was it with Fryver. He would always answer me, but it took a while. He was too busy with his other stuff. I was on my own doing the whole magazine, 100 wow. pages every month, mostly editorial. But it was great because it got me back in the groove. I really, I'm real natural with that. I feel good. I'll work 60 hours in a row just drinking caffeine if I have to to get things done. I can do that. The recovery time's a bitch now, where I'm, you know, it takes me a week to, before I can even, you know, steady myself. But I, that's what I like doing. You tell me something's due tomorrow, I'll make it happen. I'll always make it happen. I've never blown a deadline in my life that ever wound up with white space in a magazine because Dave didn't come through. So 50 years or whatever now. Wow. I've, I've never ever caused anybody serious grief or made for a white space. So this is my own baby and it was hard, but it forced me to learn about the early cars and that's something I wanted. I knew I needed it because it would give me more markets to sell to. I really couldn't sell to Street Rod or Rod and Custom because the real guys would know I didn't know what I was doing. You know what I mean? The smaller the audience, the smarter the people. You have a small niche book like that, like Hot Rod Deluxe sells maybe 30, 35,000 copies compared to Hot Rod 600,000. But those readers, their letters, they're the smart letters, they're the smart guys. Yeah, they're really It forced me, and it was a hard deal. It was hard to get those letters. You know, you're an idiot, that's not a 20, you know, a, a 29, it's a 30, can't you, don't you know about the flush doors? Oh, what? You know what I mean? Oh, man. So I had to educate myself on a whole nother, at, at an advanced age, I had to educate myself on this market and pay really a lot of attention to it. So I did, I threw myself in there, did the best I could. I did that for three years, uh, from really all of 2011, 12, and 13. I had a great deal. They paid expenses. They put me up at the Hyatt across the street. You know, it was great. I'd come in as a contract editor, so I didn't have any office politics or anything to deal with. But it just was, it was brutal. It was 70, 80 hours a week. And I was at the point, at that point, I was uh, 63 or something like that. And I, I just, you know, my body was going to fail me and all the driving back and forth. I was sick all the time because I wasn't getting enough rest. I wasn't eating right. So, uh, 2013, I, I let that go. I resigned and Drew Harden took over, which has been great for me. And then since then, Drew has, I've had a historical series in every issue, something in every issue, and he's, mm -hmm. he's kind of kept me afloat that way. And then I've been able to branch out and now I can sell to Rotter's Journal. I have uh, Andy's picnic story coming up in Street Rotter that I would have never pitched before because I really didn't know the cars well enough to even begin to, to look like I knew what I was doing. So that, that expanded it through the Hot Rod Deluxe series Power Struggles, which just concluded, uh, I pitched it so I would force myself to get into the archives and look at Can-Am racing, Trans-Am, NASCAR, none of those things I cared about at all, SCC. I was started on drag racing and I always say, I want a new race every two minutes, fire the next pair. This is sitting around for three hours to wait and see the last lap, <laughs> how, how do people do that? Because I was so spoiled, you know, from... San Fernando, two, oh two cars pushing down the, to fire up, two cars on the line, two cars clearing the lights. There was no burnouts, no delays. Wow. Got, you know, there was a car running to, at Bakersfield, the deal at the March meet used to be, if you were fired and running at six o'clock or whatever the cutoff was uh, for qualifying, 
If you were fired and running by 6 o'clock, you got to make a run. They would stack up 6, 8, 10 cars, 2 on the line, 2 clear in the lights, 6 or 8 of them push started, sitting there, heating up, waiting to run, because if you were fired and running by 6 o'clock, that is what, to me, that's, that, that keeps my interest. This, you know, roundy round stuff and all that. So I had respect for it, but I just didn't enjoy it. You know, when I'd, yeah. go, I went to, yeah. I'd go to IndyCar race, I went to one IndyCar race in my life, the Rex Maze 300 or something, the first one at Riverside. Oh, Jesus. Went to the first Long Beach Grand Prix, what a bore that was. You know, the second, the second Long Beach Grand Prix with the Formula One cars, whoever won it got out in front and never relinquished the lead. Everybody's going crazy for this. They're going 84 miles an hour average or 89 or something on a lap. And my photographer buddy's going, you see that? His head was way turned on the, on the corner. It's like, I want to see fire and parts and smoke and flames. And, you know, <laughs> this, this is not exciting. They flew all these guys here from Monaco or someplace to run around here at 89 miles an hour. I can do that in my motorcycle. You know, what's the problem? <laughs> so I just didn't have the knowledge or the interest, even though I respected all that stuff. Well, now I have a, just enough knowledge to get me in trouble where I can place a story about Can-Am or Trans-Am or something. And that's what Pikes Peak, who the hell knows anything about Pikes Peak? You know, I had no clue. Those pages that went right by in Hot Rod, you know, I mean, I never read that stuff. So now I, yeah. now I know about the answers and winning nine events in a row and this and that, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so it forced me to expand my horizons. And then because I've had really good relations with everybody that's run the old Peterson Publishing Company to this day, well, here we are in the Peterson Museum today, and I've spent this week looking at photos from 1959, uh, you know, uh, scanned images and also actual negatives. That's my comfort zone. You know, I'm learning, I, I'm constantly learning, which is interesting, and I have to turn that into a story that's going to appeal to people who remember 1959 and what happened there mm -hmm. to satisfy them. If they write a letter, I have to suck that up. The letters that I usually get are, we love your magazine, we love what you're doing, but that's fine. You know, like I'm, I'm learning too, and I'm the dumbest guy probably reading this magazine, and you were there, you're 80 years old. Thank you for expanding the knowledge base. Robert Post, who wrote, Dr. Robert Post, who wrote High Performance, The History of Drag Racing, wonderful Bible book. I was really moaning one time when I was talking to him back in Maryland about, I feel like the dumbest guy in the world. I don't know what happened. Like Lee Kelly, my boss, used to say, if you get one letter about something, it's probably just some crackpot. Don't worry about it. When you get the second letter, get your correction ready. Hmm. That means there's probably hundreds of people that were thinking about writing your letter to tell you how dumb you are. Hmm. So I've always been like that. So Bob Post, who wrote the history of drag racing, he said, well, you know, the revised edition had corrections in it. He goes, and he's written transportation books. He wrote the book about the LA red cars. He's a train expert, locomotive, wow. flies all over the world addressing transportation groups. He goes, that's how history books are written. You put it out there and you sit back and you wait to find out what you're wrong about. I felt much better here. He worked at the Smithsonian his whole career, you know. So, okay, I feel a little bit better now, yeah. but you still get that knot in your stomach, you know, when you find out that, oh my God, I can't buy up all 35,000 magazines and tear that page out. Until mm -hmm. the next one comes out, I've got a knot in my stomach because I'm so dumb, you know what I mean? Mm. So that's part of the process, but it forces you to learn. So now that I've had this relationship with, with Peterson uh, film and stuff all these years, I've, had a, the a, I've enjoyed the access that an employee does 
and have respect apparently from people who trust me with this stuff to only sell it back to the company that owns it, which has been the enthusiast you know, uh, network. And now, yeah. now the Peterson Museum owns the film. And here we are, and I'm, I'm lucky enough and fortunate enough to have that access. And like Freiberger said, what you've got is the context to know what you're looking at. In other words, you're older than dirt with a, a kid coming in doesn't know. He told me once, he goes, I want to hire somebody who knows who Carol Shelby was. When Carol Shelby died and he went to his staff guys or whatever, one of the guys who was there who he wanted to write this story, he goes, well, who's Carol Shelby? Oh, my God. And so he said it's the context that separates you from these guys, which means I'm just old, basically, and have some idea of how these things fit together. You can, anybody could, on Wikipedia, any kid working in his basement could do a history story, but it's what you leave out. If you, if you don't really understand what the politics were at the time and what the NASCAR stuff where they, you know, Chrysler quit, Ford quit, can't have the camera, this or that. You can read about those things separately, but you don't see how it all fits together with what Chrysler was doing. And, you know, if Chrysler was building a dual overhead cam engine just because Ford had a single overhead cam engine, just to shake up NASCAR, apparently, so they wouldn't let them run the Ford. That kind of stuff. You know, yeah. if you weren't there, you don't have some idea of how this all worked, mm -hmm. it's hard to present it intelligently. So I think that's the advantage I've got is I got into this basically in 19, you know, I was reading magazines earlier, but I actually went to work at that drag strip in 61, and here we are in, in uh, 2017. So that's a lot, a lot of history, even though I wasn't paying attention to a lot of this stuff. I kind of have an idea of how it, how the smog rules came in, how that affected performance. I, I was a test car driver at Hot Rod in the late 70s. The good news was I was a test car driver. I always had a new car to drive. The bad news was it was the late 70s. The Z28 <laughs> I tested was California automatic only 165 horsepower. Oh my God. You know, God, that isn't, and none of the guys at Hot Rod, they all came from LS6s and Chevelles and stuff. They didn't want to drive those cars. Yeah. Now, so, yeah, you, you know, you're going to test a 90 horsepower Toyota Silica this week. Oh, it's great having a new car to drive and everything and burn the wheels off of it, but, you know what I mean? But I got yeah. to go to the Detroit Longweeds, you know, with the new cars and experience all that stuff, even though it was the 70s. Well, what a great thing for your context, for the smog era, the laws, the insurance stuff, the muscle car stuff. I had a roadrunner, you know, I, I was there for that. So my advantage is somehow or another I was connected to, to automotive stuff all through these years. Mm -hmm. Speed shop, you know, whatever was happening, except for the time I was in the service. I have a black hole there for, the, you know, 69 to 71. I'm, it's like it didn't happen for me. I, I'm like everybody else. I read about it in the magazines, but I wasn't here to, I was so close to it, and then I was so far from it. You know what I mean? You know, since you met, uh, mentioned that, the service, didn't, weren't you driving some, uh, some you know, officers around? No. At all? No. I, you didn't. I didn't. We had Jeeps. Most of the stuff was Jeeps. If you were out on patrol, you had an M151A1, you know, Jeep. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, there were very few automobiles. Well, and there you have it, folks. Another great episode of the Rodcast brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. We want to thank Dave Wallace Jr. so much for his time and the sharing of all of his great memories. This, I promise, is only going to get better. So... Be sure to tune in for part two coming up very soon. And thank you for being here today for part one of this great series with Dave Wallace. 
And as always, special thanks to our announcer, Larry Babb, and all the staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California. Our PR person is Angela Helton, with social media management coming from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan. And as always, all Rodcast music is written and performed by me. Special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, who is always doing the heavy lifting and keeping us honest. The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Stephen Carroll Mamishian for the sole purpose of documenting and preserving the history of hot rodding. Without their generosity and passion for this work, none of this would be possible. As always, if you'd like to learn more about the foundation, just hop on over to our website, www.ahrf.com. You can also support us there by checking out our merchandise or simply by making a donation. Uh, Also, follow us on our our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, where we'll provide you with daily posts consisting of historical images that are pulled from the foundation archives, as well as information on future episodes of the Rodcast. So once again, huge thanks to the great Dave Wallace Jr. for his generosity and for being such a great friend to the American Hot Rod Foundation. And extra special thanks goes out to Bennett Harrison Steele for arriving this year on August 5th as a healthy, happy little baby boy. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope you'll join us next time right here for another Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.